You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. Bubbles there. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've been hiding inside all week because it is actually triple digits and has been in Los Angeles all week. So, you know, not awesome. No movies this week because A, tweaked my neck while I was sleeping and didn't want to be out in public for the majority of this week as a result. And B, we've got a long boy this week and I try not to subject y'all to any more of my voice than I personally can stand. Also... We got another little thing to mention, or at least I want to mention. This week marks the second anniversary of this podcast, which is, I was pretty excited, not gonna lie, as I thought I was going to do this for six months, get bored, and quit. But here we are. The only thing I don't need to take Adderall for to get finished. It's been really, really cool to watch this podcast grow in listenership, especially in the last four months or so for whatever reason. And I'm so glad I keep getting to do this, even though I have a full grown-up job now, too. I'm I'm glad that, you know, I still have this very, very time-consuming hobby to keep me busy. Thanks to all of you who listen. I'm terrible acknowledging compliments, and some of you have sent me very nice messages and reviews over the last year or so. So thank you so much for that. I'm sorry I'm weird about praise. I see you. I'm very appreciative. Thank you. I usually say this at the end of the show, but this is my one time per year Well, I will say it before the meat of the episode. If you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find me, or even donate to my support page or my Buy Me A Coffee page, that would be a huge help. Let's make year three the biggest one yet. And that's enough ego stroking, on to this week's topic. This week we're covering German cinema, the likely harbingers of the modern horror genre from its earliest days, its major movements, some of its key players as we go from 1895 all the way up to the modern day. This is like the 93rd episode, you know how this works by now. With that, let's take our places, it's showtime. France, Germany, or the German Empire, as it was known where our story begins, was another early adapter to cinema. In fact, they had their own pair of brothers who made their own film projector and camera that I'm willing to bet you've never heard of. I sure hadn't. Their names were Max and Emil Skladanowski, and they debuted their invention, the Bioscope, at the Wintergarten Music Hall in Berlin on November 1st, 1895, so almost two full months before the Lumieres. 
While the Lumieres are offsided as the first people to admit a paying audience into a theater, it was actually the Skladanowski brothers. Max had been a photographer and then Magic Lantern showman before turning to cinema. The brothers had also invented a film camera all the way back in 1892. And the brothers had been experimenting with, quote, living pictures since at least 1887 after being exposed to the phenakidoscope, I think is how you say it. It's a, it's another one of the pre-cinema devices. This one's the wheel you spin in the mirror and it's kind of like a high-speed viewmaster. That's that one. The bioscope was actually a short-lived invention, however, as when Max attended the Lumiere's expedition in person the following month while touring with their projector, he realized that the cinematograph was far superior. In fact, the cinematograph was so superior, the theater that had booked the Skladanowski brothers the following night canceled their performance after hearing about the Lumiere's feet. After that, Max would tinker with cameras and 3D technology, but nothing he did had long-lasting mainstream success on a global scale as far as film history is concerned, which is why nobody really knows about them. Also, the Lumiere's were better at selling their brands, you know, and all of this also brings into the question as the quote-unquote birth date of cinema, because it technically wasn't the Lumiere's, but that's a conversation for another day. Soon, the cinematograph films, which had been originally seen as an attraction for the rich, spread across Europe, eventually becoming more of a novelty for the middle and lower classes as film shows began touring in attractions like fairs. Filmmakers especially German ones, were disparaged by this as they viewed their films as art and not sideshow attractions. So to combat this notion, they began to make longer films based on books starting around 1910. This seemed to work, and as cinema began to expand within the country, screens in brick and mortar shops began popping up, mainly in pubs and cafes, as a mean of attracting customers. These cinemas were called Kindtop, and this is where the majority of Germans saw movies before the breakout of World War I. While there were German filmmakers at this time, as I've said, most of the films that were shown in the country at this time were actually imported, mainly Spanish and Italian films. But as the desire to see their own people on the screen grew, the first major German film stars emerged. Public desire to see more of popular film characters encouraged the production of serials, which are basically a precursor to sequels in movies or like television shows. Mystery films got especially popular, and from these films is where director Fritz Lang got his start. We'll talk a little bit more about him later. With the breakout of World War I, a boycott on English and French films ensued in Germany, which caused a content shortage for the 2,000 dedicated cinemas that had popped up in the country between 1895 and 1914. To combat this, in 1917, the German film market was partially nationalized by combining several of its major studios into Universum Film AG, or UFA as we'll call it for the rest of the episode. This was one of several film production companies founded to make propaganda films before turning to drama films when the propaganda ones were widely ignored by the German people. Later, UFA would produce films to attempt to revitalize the German image in the eyes of the world, and UFA was the most important studio of this era. Films shot in Germany during World War I had to pass through super strict red tape in order to be shown. War-themed cinema was quite prevalent, as was depictions of battles, which were recreated for the screen, which led to a lot of innovation in how you shoot things. When the number of films needed on screen went up due to the lack of outside products, many older military films, which had always been a hit with the German people, were also re-released. 
Starting around the summer of 1915, detective films and film series from German production companies saturated the market. Despite the influx of over 200 film companies popping up during the war, however, producers were still unable to meet the quota needed to fill the cinemas adequately. This was in no small part due to the censorship restrictions as well. Some cinema owners took out films that were produced in the neutral countries instead. Copenhagen's Nordisk Film Company was a major supplier and soon became a major competitor for the German filmmakers. It was this competition, in fact, that led to UFA to begin making longer fiction films. While the world didn't know it, Germany had actually become the biggest film industry in Europe during World War I. At the end of World War I, the German film industry was exposed as the juggernaut that it was, and because of their leaps forward in technology and storytelling that occurred during the war, they'd also done like experiments with color, the German film industry was arguably more advanced than even Hollywood was at this time. It would take some time to see the full extent of this expansion worldwide, however, as many countries had bans on importing German films or exporting theirs to them in the immediate wake of the war. Speaking of which, due to their involvement in the Great War and their more or less taking responsibility for it in the Treaty of Versailles, which brought an official end to World War I, the German Empire collapsed, the Kaiser, aka Emperor, abdicated, which led to the formation of the Weimar Republic. The Weimar would be Germany's first democratic regime and was immediately weakened by the astronomical economic inflation that occurred due to the effects of the Treaty of Versailles, along with other political parties trying to overthrow it over the years. All of this chaos demoralized an already traumatized German people. In addition to the major reparations they'd agreed to pay to the Allied countries, Germany also had to give up 10% of its land, surrender all of its assets outside of Germany. The treaty also limited their army and navy, forbade them from having an air force, and required the country to conduct war crimes trials. Germany signed this in the belief that they would be admitted to the League of Nations, a group that had been established to attempt to prevent a world war from ever happening again. You can probably discern how successful they were about that. And when they were ultimately denied entry to the League of Nations, many Germans felt as though they'd been duped and made the basically the fall guys of World War I, even though they hadn't started it. Hatred of this treaty and what it did to Germany would simmer in the German consciousness for 20 years and would in no small part lead to World War II, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. I just wanted to set up kind of like morally how the German people were during the majority of the Weimar Republic. Back at the end of World War I, film industry financing had become a risky business as due to the devaluation of the German currency, one bomb film could bankrupt a studio. Even UFA, the biggest studio of them all, was forced to go into a partnership called Paru Fame with Paramount and MGM for several years before the studio was ultimately taken over by nationalist industrialist Alfred Hugenberg in 1927. Despite all this, in the 1920s, Germany was putting out about 300 to 500 films per year. Remember, they're silent, so easier to churn out movies when you don't have to worry about sound. In the aforementioned attempt to revitalize the German image, films known as prestige movies were produced to fluff the German image while maintaining the country's culturnation, their term for the preservation of their high culture. This is going to be another rough pronunciation one, and I'm sorry. Prestige films relied heavily on the modernist art movements, from paintings to architecture to theater and everything in between, while allowing filmmakers to experiment with new storytelling and visual styles to further express themselves. This period is also noted for new technological developments in filmmaking and experimentation in set design and lighting, mostly led by UFA. 
But just because Germany was making a lot of movies, it doesn't mean there was a lot of money lying around. Quite the opposite, actually. So German filmmakers had to get real creative with their materials. The films also had to have mass appeal to attract as many audience members as they could because they needed to make that money back. Babelsberg, Germany, would become the biggest film exporter in all of Europe in the 1920s, and this would lead to Germany's golden age of cinema. As the world began kind of forgiving Germany, the industry was even attracting producers from all over Europe as a result of their film industries in their native countries, which had all by and large been destroyed because of World War I. Babelsberg had essentially become Europe's version of Hollywood, at least at this time. The most famous movement to come out of this era was what would be known as German Expressionism. Like many of the French film movements, German Expressionism was influenced by the art movement of the same name. If you need an example of it, think The Scream. The Scream's probably the most famous of the Expressionist paintings. But you know, it's like, it's kind of like all distorted and weird. That's, that's Expressionism. Expressionism within German film had actually loosely begun during World War I, but was contained within the country due to them being pretty much cut off from the rest of the world. Once the war ended, however, and people's anger at the German people as a whole was subsiding, the German film industry's influence began being felt the world over, especially so when it came to the Expressionist films. The first Expressionist films, which lacked big budgets, used set designs with non-realistic, geometrically bananas angles, coupled with designs painted on walls and floors to represent lights, shadows, and objects. This was in lieu of, you know, creating lights, shadows, and objects. The lighting itself was actually quite flat, so anything resembling any of these things was painted, and that included the faces of the actors. This movement was the epitome of anti-realism and focused more on the inner emotional states of individuals than the real world itself. It was basically how people, specifically the German people, felt on the inside, and that became the world on their outside, and that's what these movies were. Initially, the plots and stories of the German Expressionist films dealt with madness, betrayal, crime, and other topics influenced by World War I. In many ways, this was the German filmmakers holding a broken mirror up to their devastated country, like art therapy via filmmaking. Split personalities and dreams were often used as story devices as well. Soon the term expressionism would come to basically describe anything that struck an audience member as unsettling or bizarre or just overall weird. The most famous films to come from this movement include The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920, which is the first official expressionist film. And then there's also Nosferatu from 1922, which was an unauthorized adaptation of Dracula. Later films included Metropolis, which was a sci-fi film, probably the first feature-length sci-fi film, which released in 1927, which was directed by German staple Fritz Lang. Hardcore expressionist films were only around for like a decade or so, but their techniques would carry on into many different film genres. Early expressionism is also a precursor to modern horror, with Caligari and Nosferatu still being major motivators to modern filmmakers. Like, if you watch those, so many horror tropes came out of Caligari and Nosferatu. While this movement has had the largest seismic influence on the film industry historically, coming out of Germany anyway, expressionist cinema was actually not the biggest genre of this era, it was just the loudest one. Period dramas, melodramas, romantic comedies, and films of socio and politic nature were far more popular amongst the German people at this time. The German period drama sector is where we get directors like Ernst Lubitsch, whose most notable film, at least German film, is probably 1920s Anne Boleyn. Lubitsch was particularly scared at creating a spectacle on a budget, and he'd actually go on to be a big name in Hollywood, which is probably where you know him from. It's where I was introduced to him was his Hollywood work. 
Another big guy from these genres was F.W. Murnau, who also directed Nosferatu. And he made a big mark on the melodrama stage with The Last Laugh in 1924, which popularized the use of the moving camera, which ended up being a really big thing for the rest of cinema. The moving camera is kind of a staple now. It wasn't before this, really. Germany can also arguably claim the first feature animated film with The Adventures of Prince Ahmed from 1926, which came out over a decade before Disney's Snow White, which is the film most often credited with that title. Snow White is longer, yes, but Ahmed is over an hour, which usually kind of counts as feature, at least in animated worlds. Following German expressionism came its antithesis, genre-wise, and this was known as new objectivity. This movement was influenced by the arising issues of the German people as the rampant inflation caused a deterioration of the middle class. These films were often called street films or asphalt films as they were like shot in real locations instead of sound stages and tried to reflect reality as truthfully as possible without being an out-and-out documentary. They focused on objects surrounding the characters and through the use of quote cynical symbolism depicted the devastation felt by the German people in the wake of World War One. New objectivity would also lead to the growth of social and political films which discovered further growing issues like anti-Semitism. Sound films would slowly begin to infiltrate Germany, though silent films would still actually be produced a a fair amount into the 1930s. Experiments to add sound to film had been going on for years in Germany, but the studios were never secure enough financially to actually, like, see it all the way through. Sound began getting adopted in Germany by the end of the decade, and by 1932, nearly 4,000 cinemas in the country were fitted to play sound films. The first German filmmakers who experimented with sound often shot their films using multiple soundtracks in different languages. The 1930 film The Blue Angel, for example, directed by Austrian-born but German-based Josef von Sternberg, was shot in German and English, though with a different supporting cast in each version. It is considered to be Germany's first talking picture and was the film that would establish Marlene Dietrich as an international superstar. Fritz Lang's probably best-known German film after Metropolis is M from 1931, which was also his first sound film, though half of it was still silent but used diegetic sounds. Lang experimented extensively with background noises and sound effects, kind of in a way making his own like expressionist soundtrack. If you see no other film from this era, watch M. It's leaps and bounds ahead of its time. It's actually kind of crazy that it's from 1931. The arrival of sound in 1929 came just in time as the Weimar Republic collapsed in 1933 with the rise of Adolf Hitler. Okay, now it's time for the Nazi stuff. We all knew it was coming. Here we go. Hitler and the Nazi party began doing their sneaky Nazi shit and in March of 1933 secured their power more or less. Shortly after securing that power, they took control over the German film industry and fired all of the Jewish staff at the studios. Shortly after that, all non-German employees were also banned from the industry, as well as anybody who didn't agree with the Nazis. Even before the shit had hit the fan, as there had been plenty of warning that some shit was probably going to go down, many directors, producers, film stars, etc. from Germany had actually been steadily fleeing the country, about 1,500 in all fled. The ones that ended up in Hollywood would actually call their small community Weimar on the Pacific. One of the most notable people to flee is Fritz Lang, whose exodus to Hollywood became actually a part of film lore. It is widely believed that Joseph Goebbels, a.k.a. Hitler's bestie and the head of the propaganda department, 
for the Nazis, apparently loved the film Metropolis so much that he asked Lang to become head of his propaganda film unit. Lang fled for America instead, where he had a long and prosperous career. Many other up-and-coming German directors that had also gone to the U.S. had a major influence on American films as well. Several would work for Universal and actually be foundational to the horror films the studio would churn out in the 1930s and 40s. In addition to the 3,000 studio workers that ultimately lost their jobs, film journalists were also organized as a division of the propaganda ministry, and Goebbels was able to abolish film criticism in 1936 and replace it with a film observation magazine, which only allowed journalists to report on the content of a film and not critique it in any way. Germany had been one of the first countries to develop a sense of film theory, so this was a devastating loss to the film industry. I mean, all of it was, but you know what I mean. With the German film industry now a part of the totalitarian state, no films could be made that were not in full compliance with the Nazi regime. While there were many not well-received, just out-and-out propaganda films, the majority of German films from this time were technically made with the intention of being entertaining while subliminally supporting Nazism. International films were severely restricted by 1936, which led to another influx of German film production. The importance of the cinema as a tool of the state, both for its propaganda value and its ability to keep the population entertained and as a distraction for the horrible shit they were doing, reached its apex with the film Kohlberg from 1945. This was the most expensive film of the Nazi era, and during production, tens of thousands of soldiers were actually diverted from their military posts to appear as extras in the film. While Nazi era filmmaking within Germany was mostly of its time and had little impact on the world stage of film because, well, it was mostly Nazi propaganda. Despite this, there were actually some massive leaps forward in technical feats and mise-en-scene from this era, especially on the quote-unquote documentary front. And by documentary, I mean, they were documentaries, but they were they were for propaganda purposes. Director Lenny Reifenstahl, a major member of the propaganda department, directed 1935's Triumph of the Will, which covered Hitler's 1934 Nuremberg rally. I actually had to watch segments of this in a film class in college because of the usage of camera and editing in this, sure, let's call it a documentary, is actually incredibly revolutionary for the time. Reifenstahl's usage of camera and framing would eventually have major influences on not just documentaries, but all of cinema. In May 1945, Nazi Germany and its allies were defeated, leaving most of Europe in ruins. 60 million people had died, most of them civilians, including the approximately 17 million that had died as a direct result of the Holocaust. As part of their punishment for this war, and then the onset of the Cold War in 1947, Germany lost even more territory. The remainder of Germany was also split into two, West Germany, which was a democracy, and East Germany, which became a communist territory controlled by the Soviet Union. As a direct result of the war, the country was also split into four military zones and would not regain its independence until 1949. Since we've got two Germanys for the next 55-ish years, let's make it easy and talk about East German cinema first, as it had the smallest impact internationally, and then we'll rewind back and talk about the West so nobody gets confused. It's me. I'm nobody. So Big Boy Studio UFA was on the east side of Germany, or the facilities were at the very least, which meant that East Germany actually got its film industry back up and running a lot faster than the West did. In fact, the Soviet zone had the theaters reopened within three weeks of the fall of the Third Reich. 
One year later, DEFA, a state-owned production company, was founded and would remain the major film producer for the remainder of East Germany's existence. There was not a lot of innovations that could happen creatively over here because of the strict communistic control, which would eventually cause the industry to grow quite stagnant. In the early years, DEFA was heavily limited by what it could make because the communist control only allowed them to make communist-themed movies. Later on, though, they did specialize in children's films, particularly fairy tale movies and, quote, red westerns, which were essentially the communist version of American western films. Most of these East German movies were co-productions with countries involved in the Warsaw Pact, which was a defense treaty signed by the Eastern Bloc Socialist Republics. Another thing the filmmakers in East Germany had to contend with as the years went on were the seemingly constant changes in politics and therefore the rules their films had to abide by. For example, DEFA's full 1966 lineup of contemporary films were actually banned from distribution, among them Frank Byers' Traces of Stones, which was pulled from theaters after just three days, not for anything disparaging that was actually said within the film, but because that film and the other contemporary ones showed that communist practices were not prevalent at all times in East Germany. The most notable film to come out of East Germany from this entire era is probably Jacob the Liar from 1975, which was the only East German film to be nominated for an Academy Award. The film was about a Polish Jew during the Holocaust who attempts to raise the morale inside a ghetto by sharing encouraging rumors that he claims he heard on an imaginary radio. If that sounds familiar, it might be because there's a 1999 remake of this film starring Robin Williams. Because of the rampant restrictions and instability, many filmmakers began leaving for the West beginning in the late 1970s. Once East and West Germany began merging back together, DEFA ceased productions and was dissolved by 1992, having made about 900 feature-length films, 800 animated ones, and 3,000 documentaries and shorts. And now we're going back to the West. The 15-year period after World War II is known as the Reconstruction in West Germany, during which time the Four Powers, or Allied Control Council, brought about major change to the economy of West Germany. UFA's initial holdings, though not the studio as that was in East Germany, was confiscated, and as a result, licenses to produce films in the early years were granted to much smaller production companies. In 1949, West Germany, once they became independent again, would impose import quotas on outside films to protect their internal production production industry's financial viability. By the end of the 1940s, despite a major dip in attendance the year the war ended, understandably, cinema attendance in West Germany would be at an all-time high. This was mostly thanks to the import of foreign films before the quotas were enacted. Most of that was Charlie Chaplin pictures and American melodramas, so a lot of American films. Through this, though, Germany actually managed to hold on to 40% of their country's box office, with the U.S. making up just 30%, despite the fact that they had double the amount of films playing in German theaters. Like next week's country, Italy, many of the German facilities that had once been used for film studios had been destroyed or confiscated during or because of World War I, which led to the rise of the Trümmer film or rubble film, which is very similar to Italian neorealism, which we'll discuss next week. Basically, they were shooting on the street. 
Even when television began to grow in popularity in the early years of television, cinema attendance remained quite strong in West Germany. Through the 50s, though, most films were produced with the goal of just strictly entertainment and little to do with artistry, which would lead to a stagnation by the end of the decade. The most notable genre of this time in Germany is probably the Heimat film or Homeland film, which was characterized by just basically they were simple family or love stories that often took place in the mountains. Other popular trends of this time included remakes of old UFA films, melodramas and comedies, but frankly, one of those not popular, and also musicals. West Germany was allowed to have an armed forces again in 1955, which led to an influx of World War II era films, often depicting the German soldiers as apolitical and brave, forced to fight in a war they did not believe in for a political party they didn't like. There's some interesting stuff going on in these films. Like you've got the 815 trilogy, for example, which released from 1954 to 1955, which depicts German soldiers trying to do pretty much anything they can to avoid fighting in a war they quote unquote don't know the reason for before getting defeated by a group of idiotic slack-jawed American soldiers. The Doctor of Stalingrad from 1958 depicts German soldiers proving they're more virile than their Soviet enemies because of their ability to seduce a female Soviet captain, despite the fact that they're POWs. While these films would range widely from comedic to drama, a notable absence from all of them is the Holocaust of it all, with these films fixating instead on stories about German soldiers in various stages of defiance of the Third Reich. By and large, also, while there were German soldiers who didn't believe in the war, there were plenty fully and oftentimes brutally supportive of it. All of the atrocities committed by the Nazis during World War II is irresponsibly absent from 1950s West German films about World War II. While West Germany had been a booming cinema-making country for several years after the war, it lost most of its significance to the larger international markets of France and Italy and the like that were making more internationally appealing films. This was mainly because of what West German filmmakers were producing, and that was mostly films about West German people coping in the years following the war. There just wasn't a lot of international appeal, or probably sympathy, which limited these films' financial viability outside side of the country. While in recent decades, the view on these films has changed and the interest has definitely increased, and many of the films have gained popularity as a means to study the mindset of the West German people during this era from a culturally anthropologic viewpoint. During the time, outside of Germany, West Germany, nobody cared. By the end of the decade, film attendance in Germany began to see its first decline, which continued into the 1960s. By the end of that decade, attendance would be at just 25% of its peak from 1956. Many of the West German production companies, unsurprisingly, folded as a direct result, with the movie theaters following and reducing by nearly 50% as well. The reasoning for this occurring was mainly blamed on an overproduction of films, so the remaining studios also cut back about 50%, but the actual problem lay deeper within the economic and social circumstances of the day, though probably not in the way you'd think. By the 1960s, the average income of the West German household had actually gone way up, allowing people to entertain themselves by other means than going to the movie theater. Movies were cheap entertainment, and they were no longer a necessity to just get out of the house like they had been. Another result of this added income led to an influx of television sets in Germany, and those increased sevenfold between 1953 and 1962. 
The 60s film output in Germany would mostly consist of spaghetti westerns, which were often co-productions with other countries, thrillers, crime movies, and horror films starring Christopher Lee, of all people. By the end of the decade, softcore sex movies, some educational, some very much not, also had successful financial runs, though unsurprisingly not critical ones. But not all was lost on this struggling industry, as the West German version of French New Wave, as well as an increase in art house cinema, breathed new life into the German film industry. It all started in 1962, when, not unlike the Kais du Cinema Boys in France, a group of young German filmmakers released the Oberhausen Manifesto. Within it, the 26 signatories declared, amongst other things, quote, The old cinema is dead. We believe in new cinema. In short, this group wanted a German film industry built on artistic excellence with the director at the center of the film's vision, so auteurism, and also they wanted the death of the commercialistic bubblegum movies in an attempt to return to a purer form of cinema. It was no easy feat getting a film made as a young filmmaker in Germany at this time, as the German entertainment industry was becoming more reliant on income from television, meaning that that was more likely where the money was going to be reinvested. This meant that these young directors were building their way up making television films. Later, some of these movies would be shown in theaters, though since people had already seen them on the TV, they didn't really do that well financially in a movie theater. So it was a bit of a catch-22, and honestly not super dissimilar to what the film industry is dealing with today due to the whole like streaming of it all. In 1974, the Film and Television Accord reached an agreement between the country's two largest television broadcasters that would require them to provide an annual pot of money each year to support film production. This pot would yield films that would be released in theaters, but could also eventually be shown on TV two years after their initial release. This agreement is actually still around to this day. This money opened the door to the filmmakers that would make up the new German cinema movement, though their films would still kind of struggle to find audiences. The new German cinema, like French New Wave, was a return to auteur filmmaking and was heavily influenced by Italian neorealism, French New Wave, and the British New Wave, the former and the latter of which we'll cover in the upcoming weeks. New German cinema dealt with social issues of the day, faced the whole like Nazi and Holocaust situation for the first time head on, as well as the modern social changes that were happening within the country. This one's a little bit of a tricky one because sometimes New German cinema is actually split a little bit further between the more avant-garde filmmakers of the day, which was called young German cinema, and new German cinema is used to describe the more commercially appealing films from this era, but it's all essentially the same general ideas and it's a little confusing to split the two as they sort of bleed into each other indistinguishably. Overall, unsurprisingly, this is a pretty loose movement, especially compared to others we've talked about and we'll talk about this month as far as style goes. Some of these movies were political, some weren't. They all looked drastically from each other. There's not anything unifying in that way. The major unifier was the payoff of their promise to kind of breathe new life into the German cinema market, which it definitely did. Notable filmmakers of this era include its first major voice, which was Alexander Klug. There was also Werner Fassbender, whom dealt with Germany's unresolved Nazi past as well as racism. Best example of this from him is 1972's Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. And of course, there was our friend from a few weeks ago, Werner Herzog, whose films dealt with extreme struggles of humanity. Aguirre, The Wrath of God from 1972 is arguably Herzog's best film, and definitely from where he got the crazy-ass idea to make Fitzcarraldo, this one also involves wacky shit happening in a rural location and also a river. 
A feather in New German cinema's cap would come in the form of The Tin Drum, directed by Volker Schlorndorf from 1979, which would be the first German film to win the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar at the Academy Awards. New German cinema was around until like the early 1980s until people started getting kind of tired of it. But the film and television accords attempt to get more money in the hands of filmmakers had more or less been a success. German cinema more or less continued to thrive throughout the 1980s, with Das Boot, directed by Wolfgang Petersen, setting the record for the most Academy Award nominations for a German film in 1981. To this day, Petersen is the only German director to have been nominated for Best Director or Best Screenplay. Petersen also adapted The NeverEnding Story, which released in 1984, which at the time was the most expensive film produced outside of the U.S. or the Soviet Union, and that movie became a huge smash worldwide. Not gonna lie, did not realize this was a German-produced film, mostly because, well, it was in English, and the Disney Channel used to play this film and its sequels all the time when I was a kid. So I thought, always thought it was just Disney, and it's not. Since the Germanys rejoined in 1989-ish, Germany has enjoyed a pretty steady market, though not as a major player on the world stage as it once had. Despite this, since 1990, the number of international projects financed and co-produced by German filmmakers has actually continued to expand. The collapse of East Germany had a large effect on the German cinema industry as well. The audience numbers increased with the new population's access to these Western movies. So they had like 55 years of shit to catch up on, even though the films produced in the United States remained the most popular due to the fact that the market was completely dominated by them. And by that point, the production had become far more advanced than Germany's. German directors like the aforementioned Wolfgang Peterson and Roland Emmer have also managed to establish themselves as international successes. For the last 20 years or so, there has been a slow but steady reemergence of the German film industry on the world stage, though it still has a long way to go. To this day, many German films still focus with their history, and now they've got the Cold War to add to their repertoire. Germany has won the Best Foreign Film Oscar twice and been nominated 20 times since the reunification of the East and West. Their winners also point at the limiting scope of their film products. Nowhere in Africa from 2001 is a World War II-era drama that deals with a German family that escapes to Africa to escape German persecution. And 2006's The Life of Others deals with surveillance by the secret police in East Germany during the Cold War. Important topics, yes, but incredibly limiting in scope. Internationally, to this day, however, German productions aren't widely seen. Even domestically, German films are responsible for only about 20 to 25 of their own box office. The modern movie culture is recognized to be underfunded, short-sighted, and disorganized. Since its golden age in the 1920s, the German film industry has never regained the level of technical excellence, the popularity of its movie stars hasn't increased, and... There's just never been another global appeal to outside markets. There are occasional exceptions to this rule, and German filmmakers remain very experimental in their storytelling. 1998's Run, Rolla, Run by Tom Twiker comes to mind. That movie experiments extensively with timeline, and it's really good. I re that one's actually a really good one. I recommend that one. And there's also 2015's Victoria, which is filmed as one continuous shot, not just to look like one, like 1917 or the Birdman one. It's actually one shot. This movie is one actual legitimate shot. But even with, you know, revolutionary filmmakers and creative and avant-garde-esque filmmakers, Germany is still far from where the industry once was. 
That being said, though, Germany's influence on the film community at large is undeniable, and it will more than likely continue to be so in the years to come. And I mean, this country went from an empire to a democracy to a fascist regime, then split into two before merging back together to become a democracy once more. And all the while, there were films being made. Despite this tumultuous history, German filmmaking is here to stay. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. There's also the buy me a coffee where you buy my Saturday Phil's coffee because that has become my tradition. Also, late night script writing. It's a bitch. I've also got merch. Check it out the link in the show notes. Next week, the very genre heavy history of Italian cinema. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.